page one of the New Testament. Okay. Now, what I did probably wasn't fair, but it did drive home a point. I was uh, I was last year about this time. I was on a weekend with my oldest son. It was we were doing this passport to purity, trying to get the whole jump on the game with the guys and gals and how they relate to one another and. And so they have this, this kit called Passport to Purity, and they pretty much get all planned out for you. Got some activities and play some CDs, and you cover every subject. And, and they have these projects that you do. And uh, one of the projects, we were making our way up to Dallas and Hillsboro. We stopped off at a McDonald's, and uh, they, they want you to have two puzzles, two jigsaw puzzles. One, you just dump the contents into a plastic bag, okay? That's the one you're going to give to your son, okay? So he's just got these random puzzle pieces. All of them are there. That's in a plastic bag, and, and then you, the dad, of course, you've got the one that's in the box, right? And you've got the picture, and you've got the puzzle pieces, and it's a race, right? They're in McDonald's to see who can put the puzzle together faster. And the idea is, is that, you know, if you've got the picture, you have the picture of what God intends relationships to be, well, you're going to be able to put this together, and there's going to be order, and there's going to be joy. On the other hand, if you don't have the picture... And you're clueless and you're not even sure what you're dealing with and you're hoping you even got them flipped over correctly. It's going to be real frustrating. And that's the whole idea is to drive home this point that God has a plan. But, you know, so we started our little process there. And sure enough, having the picture and putting a puzzle together made a huge difference. I mean, I'm cruising along, got my corner pieces, got the edges there, filling it all in. I'm looking and he's trying to figure out what where do these all go? Because he has no picture of what's going to happen. You know, perhaps... Your life seems like that. Life right now seems to be just a random bunch of puzzle pieces. You're not sure how they fit together. Some of them seem flipped upside down. You're wondering if you've got three or four different pictures going, if pieces are missing. And, and frankly, especially at this time of the year, you might be drawing conclusions that life is pointless. You're discouraged. You're depressed. And not only in your own individual life, if you kind of look at the grand scheme of things, let's look at what's going on in our nation. Devastation, rampant immorality, drugs, a national debt that could cause a financial collapse. Or you look at even internationally where you've got radicals that are running nations and running rampant. And it can quickly bring us to a point of despair and a lack of hope. And thinking that this whole world, my life, it's just spinning out of control and there's no meaning to it. It's random. It's chaos. And it's crushing me. You know, if you're, uh, if you're feeling that way, and who's not to say that we all don't slip into that zone every once in a while. The opening page of the New Testament brings great hope. Now, when you come to the very first page of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, you see a random list of names and you're going, this does not help me in the study of Scripture. I don't even know who these people are. I can't pronounce any of their names. I don't know why this is even here and what this has to do with anything, especially what this has to do with my life. And that's the problem. Oftentimes we do not know what we are looking at and hence we don't understand the significance of why it's there. I'm sure you've been there. You ever been to like a museum, like an art museum? And you're just like, wow, that's art. And whoa, okay, what's that? And you're just clueless. You're like, next, you know, where do I go next? Or or you go to a historical site and you're like, what's so special about this? You know, and you're just like, this is just dirt. 
You know what I'm saying? There's some sticks there. What? Until someone comes and explains it or you read something about it, you really don't know what you're looking at. But when you get one of those docents or one of those national park rangers and he starts explaining this battlefield and where these different troops moved in and what took place right here and perhaps right where you're standing here was a significant skirmish, all of a sudden it takes on a whole new meaning. And what happens at the beginning of the New Testament and the Gospel of Matthew is that God is in the process of delivering hope in the most unlikely of places. If you were going to say, I I need hope today and I need real encouragement, I am discouraged, I am overwhelmed, probably the last place you'd turn to would be the genealogy. And yet, that's where God begins. That's where God gives us great hope in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, this genealogy is fascinating. I know that most people just skip right over it. In fact, I was asked, are you just going to skip right over it? Because, I mean, these are just names. Why not just pass it over? But I'll tell you why we can't pass it over, because God wants our hope to be grounded in history. And so the genealogy of Jesus, first of all, you know, what it does is it demonstrates the greatness of God's sovereignty, of his amazing power. Now, when we come to these genealogies here, it starts in verse one, chapter one. It's going to end in verse 17, okay? And he is going to spell out all of the ancestors, beginning with Abraham, to the person of Jesus. There's going to be three sets of 14 generations. You can see that in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And then from David to the deportation to Babylon, that's another 14. And then from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. But one of the things that you need to know is that when the Jews saw genealogies, they saw God's sovereignty. Now, the Jews kept meticulous records. And Josephus, a Jewish historian at the time of the New Testament, wrote that Jewish families prided themselves in tracing their genealogy. And not only was that an issue of a family pride and knowing where you came from and your lineage, but even the temple itself kept a very close record of all of the priests and key families and their origins and who was in what family line. This was a huge deal. And when you find in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, you're going to see the human heredity of Jesus, his ancestors, the line in which he comes from. Beginning in verse 18 through 25, you're going to find the divine heredity. You're going to find the divine line of, of how Jesus actually makes entrance into the world. Now, to the Jewish people, genealogy spoke of their sovereignty. They went so far as to believe that these were miracles in which God brought families or couples together. Now, you might think like, well, that, that does sound like a miracle to bring them together. You might be thinking it's even greater miracle to keep them together, right? What, uh, some of the uh, actual Jewish scholars and rabbis actually taught that the bringing together of a couple was on par of a miracle with the parting of the Red Sea. That's how significant they saw it. And so when Jews saw genealogies, they saw God's sovereignty. Now, in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, he wants to point out two key figures, two like hooks to hang all of this information that he's going to give to you. He is the son of David, and he is the son of Abraham. God gave some staggering prophecies, some promises to individuals so that the world would never miss 
his Messiah when he sent them. The first one, he says, is the son of David. Now, when, what Jesus, what Matthew is doing is he's giving the royal wine through Joseph, showing that Jesus is the rightful legal heir to the throne of David. Now, you might be going, now, what's such a big deal about David? Why is it important that Jesus, the Messiah, is the son of David? Well, let me tell you, about a thousand years prior to this event, there was a prophecy given to David, King David. It says in 2 Samuel verse, chapter 7, verse 16, he says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. The Jews knew and understood that God promised that through the line of David, there would be a coming one who would reign eternally. He would be the eternal God king. Uh, that actually, that theme is picked up in the New Testament. In fact, you know how the Bible ends? It ends with the reiteration of the promise that Jesus is indeed this eternal king. In fact, Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus speaking. This is what he says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I am that promised eternal king. Isaiah, about 700 B.C., he wrote this. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And look at this what he says. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You see, Christ, Jesus Christ, is reigning in heaven. He is reigning in the hearts of all those who are truly trusting him. And one day he is promised to come and reign and return to this earth. Now, Jesus, he is careful to, Matthew is careful to show, is this promised son of David. He comes through the line of Joseph, and he has, through Joseph, his adopted father, he is the legal heir to the royal throne. But not only that, but, no, that, but notice also in verse 1, he is also the son of Abraham. This is critically important because what he's showing here is that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the promise that God gave Abraham. Remember in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he said, And in you, God giving this promise to Abraham, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There is coming through you one in whom every family is going to be blessed. Or in Genesis 17, verse 7, he says, This is an everlasting covenant. Or again, he reiterated in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, he says, In your seed, speaking of offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so when you come to the genealogies of Jesus, he is showing that he is a son of David and he is also this promised son of Abraham. And so you see, it is Jesus, the Messiah. Now, when you see, or maybe your Bible has Christ, that isn't his last name. Jesus, last name Christ, like you have a last name like Smith. Actually, Christ or Messiah is a title. Christ is the Greek term. Messiah is the Hebrew term. And it actually speaks of one who is anointed. Now, the Jews would anoint either a prophet, a priest, 
or a king. And they did so to mark that individual out as one who is chosen for this role and also as an indication of God's empowerment in his life. And in the case of Jesus, he's all three. He's the prophet. He is the priest who will mediate between God and man. And as Matthew accentuates throughout the writing of his gospel, he is the eternal king. And so when we come to these genealogies and we're going to kind of walk through this, don't worry. And like, oh, my goodness, I see that there's all these names here. I'm going to hit some of them. I'm going to highlight this. But I want you to see this. These, this genealogy, it demonstrates the greatness of God's sovereignty. There's something else that this genealogy does. It also displays the depth of God's grace. This genealogy is unlike any other. And to the Jewish people that would originally hear this, why this would be staggering because of some of the people that were found in there. You would like to think that the line of the Messiah, the promised eternal God, this one who will take away the sins of the people, that he would come from a very pure line, that in him, in his line, there would be very noble characters and people that just stood out for their rightness or their just great reverence for God, or so you would think. But let's just go on here and let's take a look here. Verse 2, you have, he begins with Abraham. He says he's a promised son of Abraham, so he starts tracing his lineage from Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Okay, These weren't perfect people, but God certainly was involved in their life. They certainly had a reverence for God. Abraham was believed in God. He was declared righteous. Okay, We're doing pretty good here. Isaac, the father of Jacob. At this point, the Jewish people would be going, hey, this sounds pretty good. That's right. This is the family tree starting in Abraham. And then Jacob, the father of Judah, and Matthew carefully notes, and his brothers. Now, you've heard of Judah. In fact, there was a prophecy given. Jacob actually gave at the end of his life saying, from Judah and Judah, the scepter will never depart from your family. But Judah was a real wicked man. Remember when we went through just this, this year? We actually looked at the life of Joseph. And when we came to Genesis chapter 38, we actually had to put out a little warning. We're going to preach through this chapter. It is almost like the forbidden chapter of the Bible because the details are so sordid because Judah is such a wicked guy. How wicked is he? We're going to find that out in just a minute here. But notice he says not only Judah, but Judah and his brothers. Matthew wants to drive home the point that actually his brothers, remember Judah and his brothers? What did they do when they all got together? Well, their, their idea of a good time was to what? Kill Joseph, remember? They, in fact, they wanted to kill him, but then they kind of, hey, let's not do that. Reuben kind of talked about it, so let's throw him in a pit. And then after they, like, hey, we got to do something with this guy, they decided what? Hey, let's not kill him. Let's try to make a little bit of money off him. So they sold him into slavery. Matthew wants to drive home the point that this Messiah he comes from a history of people in great need of grace. And he references Judah and his brothers. And so Judah, they would like to think of what the end of Judah's life, where Judah obviously had encountered God and there was something very different about him. And he becomes the leader of his family. But Matthew drives home the point that Judah had an incestuous, immoral relationship with his daughter-in-law. You see this next Verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Was Tamar Judah's wife? Actually not. Tamar was actually the wife of Judah's oldest son, heir 
Okay, now never call your kid heir, okay? But he was, heir and his, his brother were so wicked that God killed him. God has a threshold. And at some point along the line, he said, that's it. You're done. And he kills the oldest boy. Now, what happens in, in Jewish culture is that the, the next son was to raise actually up a line to actually have a relationship with this woman, the, the, the brother's wife, so that that line could continue, that hopefully this woman would bear a son and the, and the family line of her husband would actually continue. Well, the second son was so wicked that God actually took him. So Judah's like, okay, he's got one more son. His name's Sheila. He's like, okay, well, he's too young to marry you, but when he gets up time, I'll, I'll actually have you marry him and everything will be fine. But of course, you know, Judah's thinking, this gal is bad for my boys, okay? I, I don't really want Sheila having her. And so Tamar's watching this all in. She dresses in widow's garments. She sees it all. And she sees that, hey, I should, Sheila should have me. I should have, be married to this man, but Judah will not have it. And so, you know what happens? Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She actually dresses up as a harlot, as a prostitute. And furthermore, she goes and places herself where she knows that Judah, her father-in-law, will come. And you know what happens. Judah is such a rampant, immoral guy. He actually says, hey, I want to have a sexual relationship with you. What will it cost me? She names the price. He pays it. It was from a result of that one-time union that these two boys that are mentioned right here at the very beginning, Perez and Zerah, they come from. And from Perez comes the line of the Messiah. Are you startled and bothered yet? Certainly the Jewish people, when they hear, whoa, whoa, you've got to be kidding Whoa, yet, friends, we haven't even gotten to David yet. This is, to, this, is, this is here for a reason, friends. It's to drive home a point that God is one who is going to administer great grace because there is a great need. Well, I hope you're thinking, well, man, hopefully it's going to get better from here on out here. Okay, we've, we've got that first three verses. Let's just get on to the nice stuff, right? Okay, so we have Judah was the father of Perez by team. Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Great. Okay, we got these names. We're just going to keep flowing through here. Verse 4. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Wait a second. Rahab. You see, there are five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. This is completely uncommon. When you gave genealogies, you always just spoke the males. You kept the females out of it. But Matthew drives home the point that these, there are women involved, and these women are not even Jewish. Okay? Tamar is a Canaanite. We come to Rahab. Whoa. Rahab is going to rock a lot of folks' boat because Rahab, Rahab was a prostitute by trade. She is a she is a pagan, and yet when we come to to Rahab, we need to understand what's going on here. Rahab, like like Tamar, is an outcast. She runs an inn. She's a prostitute, 
And yet she hears of how God is working among this people, peaceful Israel, how he actually took them out of slavery of Egypt, how he is leading them through a desert, how no one can stand in their way because God fights their battles for them. And she believes. She drops her paganistic ideas of God and she believes in the one true God. And she does something. You know, when you truly believe in God, there is a change of life. And that was certainly the case for this woman. She actually, Rahab is the one who actually receives two Israelite spies who come into Jericho. She receives them. She hides them. And she does this great act of kindness to the Israelite people because you know why? Because she believes in the one true God in whom they're following. And this woman's faith is so significant. Do you know that she makes her name, her name is mentioned in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And so she she has this great act of kindness toward God's people, but she is a Gentile. Now, the Jewish people prided themselves in being able to trace a pure line. And yet, so far, here we go. We have Tamar. Now we have Rahab. These are Gentiles. What are they doing in the line of the Messiah? Well, you might be holding on to that question here. Let's see if things get better here. Well, then you have verse five. Then you have Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Several generations are skipped here. And by the way, that's how genealogies work. Okay, they would remember key individuals. And to say that they are father of was to say that they're a descendant of. But that could be a grandfather. That could be a grandson or a great grandson. You could skip multiple generations. What they're doing is tracing key figures in a particular line. Now we come to Ruth. You see that? In chapter five, chapter one, verse five, Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Who is Ruth? Well, Ruth is also a Gentile. She is a Moabite woman. And do you remember the story when we actually went through and looked at Ruth? She comes from a family, which maybe you know this, maybe you don't. You know how the Moabites get started? Anybody know? The Moabite people as a people group get started due to an incestuous one-time relationship with Lot and his oldest daughter. The Moabites were despised by Israel, and furthermore, they were one of Israel's great enemies. Ruth is a, a Moabite. And she marries an Israelite boy. That guy dies. The whole fam- All the males die. So Ruth goes back with her mother-in-law, Naomi. They go back to Israel, back to the promised land. And it's there that she actually marries a man by the name of Boaz. Ruth gives one of the great confessions of, of true, authentic belief in God. And she actually demonstrates that she really believes because she will follow Naomi and walk by faith. And she goes as a Gentile Moabite woman who is now a believer in Yahweh into the promised land. And you know the story, a story of amazing grace. And this man, Boaz, marries Ruth. And you know who, you know who they're, their, grand, their grandson is King David. You see what's happening here? Three different times, Matthew highlights that Gentile women are in the line of King David. And so then we, we find here in, uh, in verse 5, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. David the king, the one who receives the great promise, the one who is promised through you is going to be an eternal King, one who will reign forever. And yet Matthew wants to highlight something about David's life to demonstrate 
that humanity is in great need of grace, even his lineage. He says, verse 6, Jesse was the father of David the king. But notice what he adds. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. It's, it's almost too difficult to talk about. This great king, this one who penned many of our psalms, he was involved in, in a heinous sin. He's the one who actually invites Bathsheba over when he's supposed to be out fighting wars and battles. That's what kings do. Now, he's kind of leaving that in the hands of some of his commanders. He's just hanging out in the palace. He's bored. He spies a beautiful woman. She's bathing. He calls her over, and he has a relationship with this woman. She, she comes back to him a little while later and says, I'm pregnant. David's going, okay, bad deal. I'll work this out. Leave it to me. I'm the king. And so you know what he does? He, he calls his Bathsheba's wife in, I mean, Bathsheba's husband, calls him off the, the battlefield, and he actually tries to set it up where he'll go spend some time with his wife. But he will not leave because the soldiers are out on the field. And so finally, you know what he does? He says this, you know, this Uriah guy, this husband of Bathsheba, I, I, I got to get this guy killed somehow. And so he actually sends orders to have him put up in the front line. And while he's up there fighting for everything he's got, fighting for King David, fighting for Israel, then you're supposed to give the orders to pull back. And your eye is going to stand up there. What? That wasn't part of the battle plan. Battle plan. And he's going to get mowed down. And David's going to take care of it all. And that happened just the way I explained it. And David goes on to marry Bathsheba. That, that child, that boy... That boy dies. But they actually have another child. His name, King Solomon, the great receiver of wisdom and the writer of the Proverbs. And all of this is to illustrate this, that God is a God who is, displays the depth of his grace by even showing, by even including these people in their lineage. There's going to be one other woman that's an outcast that's mentioned in this, and that's Mary. She's found all the way in verse 16. We're familiar with Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was an outcast because you know why? She bore the stigma of a pregnancy outside of wedlock. But, you know, we're, going to, we're actually here in verse 5 here, or verse 6. We're looking at this genealogy. And I, I wanted to highlight some things. I wanted to point out that God is a God who is working through Gentiles as well as Jews. When you look at the line of the Messiah, he is certainly Jewish, but he is also has very much has Gentile blood in him. Why is that? Because Jesus is the Messiah, not just for the Jews, but for the world. He is the world, world Messiah. He's not like, well, we're just, he's a Jewish Messiah, but we're just kind of hopping in here. Uh-uh. This has always been God's plan throughout the ages. I am going to reach out to the nations and draw people to myself, to my Savior. And I'm going to demonstrate that even by giving his genealogy and showing you that in his line, there is Gentile as well as Jewish blood. Well, let me just highlight a few others here. Um, some of these folks we don't know a whole lot about. Some of them were pretty decent folks. Some of the, you know, We're going to trace the kingly line, starting with David here, of all these different kings. Okay, Some of these kings, though 
were absolutely wicked. So you remember from even last week, verse 9, you got a guy by the name of Uzziah. Okay, Uzziah, he was larger than life. He reigned for 52 years. You know, he started off real pious and he was a real holy guy. But you know what? He had an undoing, his pride. And his pride led to his demise. And then you've got, uh, you see in, in verse 9, you've got another guy. Here's one of the great kings of Israel, Hezekiah. I always thought that'd be just a great name for a son, Hezekiah. In fact, we even deliberated on that because if he was a linebacker, the Hez. I mean, doesn't that sound dangerous? But it didn't work. Okay. So we have uh, Austin and Cameron. But anyway, so you got you have Hezekiah. What? I mean, just his name himself. What a great king, a godly king, a king who would face huge trials and amazing problems. He just spread out these issues before God and just pray, God, take it over. But you know, Hezekiah may have been a great king. He was a terrible dad. His son, Manasseh. You ever notice how nobody names their kid Manasseh? You know why? Manasseh was a wicked, wicked man. How wicked was he? Well, try this on for size. He took one of his sons and he sacrificed it on an altar to um, Molech, which was the god of the Moabites. And the idea was that they had these stone hands that were heated by fire. Okay? So they were just raging hot. And he placed his kid on there. Why? Because he was rampantly pagan. He totally rejected God. He consulted mediums and spirits, spiritists. He was the one who just led uh, the whole southern kingdom, Judah, into so- all sorts of rampant paganism, immorality, and wickedness. He did a great evil. He was a terror even to his own people. He sacrificed and he killed a lot of innocent people. And yet, you know what it took? You know what it took for a wicked guy to finally realize there is a one true God? It took. Babylon to come in and what they did is they actually chained him up with bronze chains and to lead him around they ran a hook through his nose and they drug him all the way back to Babylon he was their little prize and that hardship that real difficulty and frankly it sometimes takes that doesn't it God got through to his stubborn wicked heart and he repented and he believed his son on the other hand Next guy in there, you see that, Ammon? This guy, terrible. He completely rejected God. Two years after he becomes king, he's assassinated by his own officials. You've got some other kings in here. Um, you've got a really interesting situation here. Verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, you've got a king by the name of Jeconiah. Okay? Now, Jeremiah gave a prophecy and said, you know what? From your descendants, there will never be a king. And you're like, Whoa. Okay, that's a problem. I thought we're tracing the line of Jesus, who's the king, and Jeconiah has this, this, this prophecy given about him. Well, let me just tell you what's going on here. Jo- Joseph has the ability to pass on to be the legal heir of the throne of King David. But is Jesus born of Joseph? He's not. He's born of Mary. In fact, we're going to see that in in just a little bit. And so the curse actually bypasses. Yeah, you know what? There is not going to be a descendant, someone from his seed, not one of his kids. But he is still the legal king. And that kingship, that through law, can actually be passed on. And it is passed on to Joseph. And so we trace this genealogy. Some of these guys we know very little about. Some of them are good. Some of them are wicked. 
But let's go on to some names that we're pretty familiar with. Verse 16, Jacob is the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ or the Messiah. We come to Joseph and it's notice how things change here. The husband of Mary by whom I, I want to point this out here. You see that word whom that actually is feminine. It refers to Mary. You see, Matthew is tracing the royal legal lineage of Jesus from Abraham, to David to Jesus, showing that Joseph, Joseph has the ability through adoption to pass on the legal heir. But Matthew is very quick to point out. Jesus is not born of Joseph. He's born of Mary. And that's actually what we find in the verses beginning in verse 18. His divine right to rule because he actually is God himself. And we're going to see that next week. You see, all of this tracing through this genealogy, you know what it does? It displays the depth of God's grace. Why? Why are all these wicked people in here? Prostitutes, people that commit incest. I mean, just the worst stuff. Why? Because God wants us to see he's a messiah of people of, in need of great need of grace. Isn't that you? That's me. Nothing meritorious about me. I'm a sinful person like you. I need a Messiah. I need a Messiah of grace who will give me something I do not deserve. Salvation, redemption, life with him. And the genealogy that is presented here is to drive us to that conclusion that that God himself displays the depth of his grace even through the genealogy, the lineage of the Messiah. And one other thing about, the, about this genealogy, it distinguishes the identity of God's Savior. It makes it crystal clear who the Messiah is. Now, why would God go through such great detail, not only to have us see these names, but to actually present the Messiah through this line? Why not... Why not just deliver Jesus on the doorstep? Okay, why not just skip all that? Why not just have Jesus just appear? You know why? It's pretty simple. God knows that we listened to the evening news last night. God knows that we're fully aware of all the problems in humanity. Anything from racism to enslavement of people, of all the wickedness. God knows about that we're a country that kills its babies For the sake of convenience. God knows that many people totally disregard him. God knows that nations are all about power and there's all sorts of evil that is out there. God knows about our problems in our society. He knows about the problems within our life. And he wants us to know this. I can be trusted and I'm in control. I can work out my perfect plan despite whatever evil is out there. In fact, I am perfectly moving history along exactly the way I intend. Yeah, it looks like the wheels are coming off the cart. It certainly does as you look at the genealogy. But it's as if God is saying, look it. I have accomplished my will perfectly. And he says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. It ends there because everything we need is found in Jesus, who is the Messiah. He traces these different sets of 14 generations, and there was obviously a lot more people. He does it in sets of 14 so they can be memorized, so people can learn these things. But he's trying to drive home a point. He is the God 
who's in charge of history. There's no other names that are needed. No famine could keep God from accomplishing his purposes. No enslavement could keep him from bringing forth his his people. There is no famine that could wipe them out. There is no wilderness wanderings that would get God off track. We're like, well, I can't accomplish what I said I was going to do. There is no captivity in Babylon that could prevent God from achieving his divine purposes. Do you know why? Because he is God and he's in control and he wants us to know that. And when we come to the Christmas season, we need to know that. We need to know that God is is fully capable and is actually accomplishing his divine will. Your life right now, lay it out there. What are the problems you're facing? What are the difficulties? What are the challenges? God is at work in your midst. You and I may not see it, but you need to know this. He is fully in control and he's accomplishing his pieces. You see, this genealogy reveals that God is in control of history. He is committed to providing salvation. God wants the focus and the apex of history to be fixed upon Jesus, who is the Savior and is the Messiah, and he is culminating all things in his Son. You see, when you and I put our trust and faith in Jesus, the Messiah, verse 16, all the pieces of our life start coming together. If you're here without Christ, you're like my son trying to put together a puzzle with no picture and all these random pieces. It doesn't make sense. You're not, I don't even know how it goes together. What, I don't even know what I'm building. That's life apart from true, authentic relationship with God because you were designed to be in relationship with him. But this book gives us the picture. And it all begins with us believing in the Messiah. You know, God is not in a hurry. You probably figured that out. He's not in a hurry in history. That's actually one of the big things in the Old Testament. God is not in a hurry. He's not even in a hurry in your life. He is, though, very much unmistakably accomplishing his good purposes in history and in our lives. And this book, the Gospel of Matthew, is given to us so that you and I will truly know how to live in relationship with God. This Gospel of Matthew, let me just tell you what it does. It identifies God's Messiah. It gives clear identification of God's Messiah. It actually begins page one, chapter one, verse one, identifying Jesus is the promised one. He's the one who forgave, who can forgive your sins because he's paid the penalty for your sins by actually dying on the cross. It's Jesus Jesus, who you need is Christ. But you know what else it does? The Gospel of Matthew is an invitation of actually putting your trust in him. Jesus makes this great declaration, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. He says this, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Are you tired of doing life on your own? Are you frustrated? Are you broken? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Guess what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The gospel of of Matthew is an invitation, no matter where you're at, no matter how messed up you've made done with your life, it's an invitation. Come, trust me, believe in me. I am the fulfillment of all of the promises given. And furthermore, This gospel is an instruction on how to truly live as Christ's disciples. He gives us five major discourses 
This gospel of Matthew, think of it this way. It is a manual for discipleship. It's this book, this this one specific gospel shows us how God intends his people to live and everything he wants us to know. Hence, he writes it not in chronological order. He writes it in topical order. And let me just tell you one other thing about the gospel of Matthew as we begin this. This book gives us an injunction to go and make disciples of all the nations. It's God's divine decree. It is his great commission. God calls people to himself to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we truly enter into relationship with Christ through his empowerment, he sends us to the nations to go and make disciples. This book draws us to Christ. It trains us and he sends us. In fact, you can read about it in Matthew chapter 28. This is how the book ends. Verse 18. And Jesus came up, spoke to them. He's saying this. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I am the promised king. It begins with the promise that he is the eternal king. It ends with this great declaration. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. I want you baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I have this written down so that you will be able to pass it on. Everything I want you to know, I've got written down in this book. And he says, I'm going to be with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's what this gospel does. You see, why does God trace this lineage of Jesus with such great detail, such difficult detail? So that we will see the hand of God moving in history. You know what that does? It gives us the hope of God for today. But friends, if you're out there and you're confused and you're broken down or maybe even a Christian, and right now, and you're just like, whoa, my world is falling apart. You know where we need to begin? We need to begin where this gospel begins. We begin, we begin with Jesus and his genealogy. Gordon Terpstra, he was writing of an event that took place during World War II. And he was writing of an account of when German, Germany would come over at night and they'd just bomb uh, Great Britain and England to pieces. And there was an event that took place where there was a man with his son. They were actually in a building that were hit. And so they go fleeing out of this building. They run to their house. But there is a huge crater that had developed because it had been hit by this by one of these German bombs. And so the dad running for his life with his son, his dad throws himself into this pit. OK. And the boy, the little boy standing up there and his dad starts saying, jump, son, jump. And the father could see his son because, you know, with all the fire and the bombing and he could see through that faint light of red, that red hue that would be over London. He could see his son, but his son looked down and he just saw a blackness, a pit. And yet he heard his father's voice saying, come, jump. And he said, Daddy, Father, I, I can't see you. Son, just jump. I can see you. And that boy did jump. And there's some parallels to this. Friends, you and I cannot see God, but we can hear his voice in the pages of Scripture. It begins at the very first verse. Who we need to fall into and the arms we need, they are Jesus. You see, the pieces of history in our life, they're all going to come together. They all come together when we truly have Jesus as our Messiah and our Lord. You know, when we see the hand of God working in history, you know what that does? 
He gives us hope for today. You know, as we enter in this Christmas season, friends, I know there's going to be a lot of things clamoring for your attention. But Christmas is all about the coming of Christ. And this is a coming that had been promised long before. And God, through great detail and with great pain, has brought forth a Messiah, a Savior to you and to me and to this world. And we who trust Christ, we worship him. That should be our message this season. And for all of those who may be here today who have never placed your trust and faith in him, do you not even see from the genealogy, which perhaps has always just been skipped over, that God, with great detail, has provided you a Savior? And like the father who is calling to his son, come and fall into my arms and I will rescue you. So God is calling out to each one of you. Trust me. Come to me. Believe in my son. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the amazing power that you have to orchestrate history. And to reveal it on the pages of scripture. And perhaps we've always just missed this or just jumped over it. And yet... We see by looking at the genealogy that you are a God who demonstrates great sovereignty, who displays amazing grace. You're a God who reaches out to those who are outcasts and you bring them grace and even to your family line. And if you would do that for your descendants, Lord, how much more for your children who have been adopted by you because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, if there's someone in this room here today who's never trusted Jesus, that right now they just pray with me and say, Lord, I finally get it. You've brought me to the end of myself that I might see Jesus. And I turn from my sin and doing life on my own. And today, I place my trust in Jesus, who is called the Christ. I receive salvation in his name. And the newness of life. And so, Lord, I pray this Christmas season would be unlike any other. And that our hearts would be resonating with yours. And we'd rejoice that you have indeed sent the world a Savior, who is Jesus our Lord. And we pray in his name. Amen.